what I said in my prayer earlier, I really meant. My words are inadequate. But what I find is that God's words are never inadequate. God's words never fall short. And when we come together as the church and we proclaim these truths in song, the collective voice of the people of God is adequate. There it goes. Especially so when we're echoing what Scripture tells us. When the songs that we sing are the refrains from the Psalms or from Scripture, where we have God's word implanted in us so that we can live our life differently. In the 1940s, a radio host put it this way. He said, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This series of radio events later became the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he described this longing that we have for something more than just the carnal things around us that we can see, that we can feel, that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can experience. When I find in myself something that this world cannot satisfy, it teaches me that there's something more. There's something else to this life. For us as the people of God, when we choose to follow after Jesus and we trust in him with all that we have, he promises that you have the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God dwelling in you. That's what God says. That's what his word says to be true. And that's what God tells us. So as the church and each individual Christian, each person that wears the name of Jesus has the power of the spirit in us. I'm going to read from John chapter 16, starting around verse 4. But what we're to do, our mission as the church, is that we're to train up and to release a spiritual army. This isn't just a social, social club or something that we come to do on the weekends or when we have time or even something that we make a priority just to come do and then we go out and we live our lives differently. But our job as the church is to train and to release a spiritual army. What we do is very serious. The task before us is of the utmost importance. That's why Jesus, in talking about the spirit, the power of God that I have in me, Jesus says this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. Jesus is talking about going back to be with the Father. But now I am going to him who has sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But I have said these things to you, and sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12 continues, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, what he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. 
If you go back to verse 7 where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I will go away. For if I don't, the helper won't come. Some translations have that. It's to your benefit. It will be better for you if I go away because it's not until I go that the Father is going to send the helper, the counselor, the spirit, the helper, the advisor, the one that the Bible tells us will petition God on our behalf when I'm so broken and I don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit of God will intercede on my behalf and go to the Father for me. This power that we have in us is in the Spirit is what makes us different because the creator God of everything is alive in me and alive in us as the church. I'll read a couple verses for you from the book of Acts. On Wednesday nights, the adults, as we meet, we're going through the book of Acts. We're in about chapter 10. But what happens all throughout this, the book of Acts is that it is spirit-driven. Jesus, it's the end of the gospel of Luke. It's part two where Jesus is ascended and he goes up into heaven. And he tells his disciples to go and to wait. We don't like it when God tells us to wait. I imagine the disciples didn't very much either. It's in verse 8 and the ones around there after Jesus has gone back up to heaven when Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. All throughout the book of Acts, our history book of the church, we have the Spirit. As you read the descriptors that are given of the people that we have, the names that are recorded in the book of Acts, that Peter, filled with the Spirit, preached the first Christian message on the day of Pentecost, and thousands came to believe and put their faith in Jesus and were baptized. And all throughout Scripture, the disciples and those that believed, especially in the book of Acts, they're described with being full of the Spirit. Even so, when the disciples or the apostles come across a problem in Acts chapter 6, where there's a section of the Christian community that's being neglected, so they say, we have to focus on the word and prayer, but we need some other people to help us. So they appointed seven men that were described as full of the Holy Spirit. And what we have is Stephen is one of those. It's the first one that's mentioned. And right after that in Acts 6, and you turn to Acts 7, and we have Stephen giving a phenomenal summary of the Old Testament before the religious leaders. And he accuses them of what they did. They turned on Jesus and they killed him. And their religion was no true religion at all. It was something that they had turned into something that God had never created for it to be. So Stephen, again, described in the book of Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit, delivers these words that it makes them mad, and they drag him outside of the city, and they kill him. And one of the other seven from Acts chapter 6, who was chosen to make sure that the widows who were being neglected in the daily distribution of food, along with Stephen, who is also described as being full of the Spirit, we have Philip, where he listens to what the Spirit has to say for him to do. Previously in Acts 8, we have Philip proclaiming the word in Samaria. Then we have this story starting in verse 26 and following. I'm just going to read a little bit. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. There's a lesson there, folks. When God tells you to do something, do it. Sometimes, well, why? Are you sure? Are you sure you didn't mean to ask somebody else? When God tells you to do something, do it. Because if you don't, maybe somebody who's going to come to follow Jesus because of your obedience to the Spirit of God won't have that chance. That's what I really believe may have happened to this Ethiopian eunuch as we have of what unfolds next.
So the angel of the Lord told Philip to go, and he did what? He went, he listened, he was obedient to God. Verse 27, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Cadence, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 28, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over there and join this chariot. Philip goes over and he joins the chariot and this unit is primed to hear the message of Jesus. He's reading the Old Testament, friends. That's what it does. The Old Testament points everything to Jesus. Everything, everything, everything is moving to Jesus. So he's reading what we would call the prophet Isaiah. That's what they called him too. He was blessed enough and privileged enough to be able to read and to have a copy in his hands, which was rare, that you and I take for granted. And he was reading about the prophet Isaiah, and then the Spirit of the Lord told Philip to go, and he went. And even then, when Philip was in that place where God was calling him to go, the Spirit spoke to Philip, and he said, go over to that guy whom you have never met, who is of a different ethnicity than you, speaks a different language than you, does, has different responsibilities in life, who is way above your pay grade in life, but Go talk to him. And Philip, still full of the Spirit, as this is the, the disclaimer, the qualifier we have so often of the people that we read about in the book of Acts, he explains to this eunuch what Isaiah was talking about and who Isaiah was looking forward to, and that's Jesus, the one who has no rival and the one who has no equal. And the response of the eunuch is, all right, let's do it. I believe here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And then he is baptized and the spirit does what the spirit does. Often Philip is gone miraculously somewhere else to share a message with other people about Jesus. Later in Acts 8, it goes on to tell us that Philip found himself in another city, but the Ethiopian went about rejoicing because he had had the gospel the good news explained to him in a way that he could understand. A couple more passages. No promises of wrapping it up. Only a rookie like Philip would say that, right? It does come from Revelation. Uh, just because it's at the end doesn't mean it's at the end of what I'm going to say. A couple times in the book of Revelation, which is this phenomenal picture that you and I are given of the throne room in heaven. There's a lot of, you might read it and you go, there's some crazy stuff in there, Joel. And you know what? You're right. There's some stuff in there that can be difficult to understand. But what we have to know is that of all the books in the New Testament, the one that is most heavily reliant on an understanding of the Old Testament to get what in the world John was talking about is Revelation. The most direct quotations to our Old Testament of any book in the New Testament comes from Revelation. The most illusions, which aren't a direct quotation, but it's kind of talking about the same thing that Isaiah or Jeremiah or Zechariah talked about, is in the Old Testament. So a lot of times, the questions that we can't figure out about what Revelation is talking about, what Jesus showed to John in that Lord's Day when he was filled with the Spirit, is because we don't know our Bibles very well. And I'm talking to myself when I say that. A lot of the really hard questions that we're trying to figure out, you might say, well, I can't understand Revelation. Well, you can God and the Spirit can teach you and can show you what it means. And really, the better that we understand the Old Testament, we can pretty understand pretty clearly what John says. But there's a couple different um, qualifiers that are given 
in this book. It's the revelation of Jesus to John. John, the beloved disciple who was among the three that Jesus spent the most time with. He called the 12. He spent the most time with the three. He also didn't neglect, neglect the crowds. Jesus taught them too, and he had compassion on the crowds. In the same way as I look at my life and as I orient it, I've got to have compassion on people. I've got to have a tribe around me that I can invest in with my faith, but I've got to have those not even a handful of people that I can completely trust and confide in with my faith. That's what Jesus had with Peter and James and John. So it's at the end of his life as John is exiled to the island of Patmos, and he is in prison. Of all the disciples of Jesus, he's the only one that we know of, or he is the only one that did not die an early death by execution or killing or torture. But Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and following says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he says, I was there. Don't mishear that. I was in prison, exiled because of Jesus and my faith. That's what that says. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I hope you can relate to that. As we come together, as we sing, sing songs, as we echo scripture, as we collectively raise our voices together and we join in the chorus of Christians who are worshiping all around the world, who have been worshiping since the beginning of the church, we join in worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He says, and I heard behind me a voice like a loud trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In Acts 2 and 3, we have those letters to the, to, the, to the seven different churches. And then again, after that, in Revelation chapter 4, it says this. And behold, I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard calling, speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2, at once, still we have this description of John again. I was in the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit, to the full brim of the Spirit of God experiencing his presence. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and there was one seated on the throne. And then he gives us this description of what happens in Revelation 4 and 5, is that there is a throne room in heaven, and it is not vacant. That God is on it, and God is in control. And that sets the frame for everything else that happens in this Revelation and the rest of the book of of Revelation, all from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 21 and all the crazy stuff that happens there, that there is a throne room, and God is there, and he is on it. And yet these two different times of John, if he wasn't willing to submit himself to the Spirit of God, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation. We wouldn't have this picture at the end of our scripture that gives us this discipleship manual for how we're supposed to live in a world that is so broken and anti-Jesus. But John, the one whom Jesus loved, was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I have to think it's because of that obedience. It's because of that steadfastness he had, the perseverance that John had. He was given this glimpse into heaven. And we have this description again where it even says he's taken, oh, there's a door room open and there's a voice that says, come on up and let me show you around. I'm sure Anthony gives a pretty good tour at Woodland, but it's going to be nothing like what John saw in heaven. 
when Jesus says, come and let me show you what my Father has in store for you. When we neglect the spirit that God has given us, we find that we're just lacking in this life. We're to train and to release a spiritual army. The task that you and I have as the church is so serious. That's why somebody handed me a story of a minister that once said to somebody in the church, they said, hey, you've been coming here for a little while. You need to join the army of the Lord. They said, well, preacher, I am. Well, how come I only see you a couple times a year? And he just leaned in and said, I'm in the secret service. (laughs) Friends, there's, there's no secret service when it comes to the kingdom and its work. Sometimes we laugh at things, and those little stories and anecdotes are funny. But it's not so funny when I live my life reflective of that way. Well, I don't want anybody to know that Jesus is the most important thing that I have. And because of that, I'm going to orient my life around him, and everything that I do is going to be because of him, for him, because he has no rival and he has no equal. This week I heard the story of a boy named Billy who, due to a genetic defect, um, he didn't have a right arm. He's a seven-year-old boy, and the mom, like any mom, worried. That's what moms are programmed to do. Some more than others, they worry about their kids. Uh, not that us dads don't, but moms, there's just something that just worry. So she was especially worried about Billy because he didn't have an arm. Is he going to be bullied? Is he going to have friends? Is he going to live a normal life? How is he going to be treated? But what she did is she decided she was going to just surrender that over to God, and she was going to try to support Billy in whatever he decided that he wanted to do and whatever opportunities came his way. So one day Billy comes home from school, and he comes up to his mom, and he's really excited. He says, Mom, I want to take karate lessons. And she thought, man, this is not going to go well, but she would remembered that peace that God had given her, and she said, all right. So they went and they signed Billy up for karate lessons, and he loved it. So every week, they went to karate lessons. And what the instructor did is he took Billy, taught him this one move. He said, Billy, you need to learn this one move, and he didn't teach him anything else. You need this one move. Go home and practice it. Stand in front of the mirror until you get it down perfect. So he practiced and practiced and practiced. A couple weeks later, the instructor looked at Billy, and he said, you know what? You've got this down. I'm going to enter you in a tournament. So Billy didn't think that he should, but he entered the tournament. He went into it, and he won his first two matches shockingly he said i only know this one move and so he was dejected the first two kids he didn't think he could beat and billy knew he couldn't beat the third kid and so he was down and the instructor went over to him and he encouraged him and so billy got up and sure enough in his third match he won so the karate instructor went to billy and he and he entered him in a regional tournament and the first kid that billy was going up against knew more about karate than billy would ever learn in his life and he just felt so inadequate to go up and he was just dejected on the sidelines before the match started and his instructor went over to billy and he said what's wrong and he said i only know one move you want to fight this kid and i only know one move you only taught me one move we do that don't we we project on another you only taught me one move i'm gonna get killed and what the instructor had to do to Billy is he had to talk to him, and he had to explain it to Billy, Billy very carefully. He said, what you don't understand is that the one move that I taught you, in order for your opponent to defend it, he has to be able to grab your right arm. With one move. Billy did things that never, never thought possible. Sometimes I believe that God gives us this one move, this something to do, and maybe you feel like you're inadequate in the kingdom. 
Maybe you feel like you're missing something that a Christian's supposed to have and you could never do what God has called for us to do. But with the power of the Spirit, you can. I can't help but think that maybe a lot of times spiritually we're like Billy and we can't see the way that God has gotten us ready for the task that he has put in front of us. Because the power that you guys need, the power that I need, the power that we need is the power that you have in the Spirit. It's the power that John had as we get this picture and revelation about what the throne room in heaven looks like. It's the power that Peter had when he stood up on the day that the church was started, that had always been a part of God's plan, and he proclaimed the truth of Jesus. That's the power that you and I have. If you are saved, if you are a Christian, if you're a fellow journeyer with us in our faith, you have the Spirit. The word used in Scripture to talk about the Spirit is a word that means wind and breath. And wind is powerful. It moves ships across the sea and it moves planes across the ocean. In fact, Peter in 2 Peter 1.3 says that by God's divine power, he has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Let me personalize that for you. What God's word tells you is that by God's divine power, he, the Father, has given you, his sons and daughters, everything that you need to live a godly life. Yet a lot of us are walking around saying, well, I don't have a right arm. I can't. I won't. I refuse. And the whole time God's saying, if you just knew, if you just knew. In 1963, the United States Navy launched a nuclear submarine named the Thresher. And it was the most powerful submarine that was ever put in the water. And it was described as indestructible. If you ever build anything, don't describe it as indestructible. The day of its launch, it sank. The engine failed and it went down 8,400 feet to the bottom of the ocean, a mile and a half to the bottom of the ocean. The pressure at that depth in the ocean is 3,600 pounds per square inch. So the Navy got a specialized ship with sailors that could handle that pressure to send it down to try to recoup some of the stuff that they had on there. And what they found when they went down that mile and a half to the bottom of the ocean where this indestructible submarine was is that the force had crushed it like it was a little piece of paper. And one of the sailors noticed as they were down there looking around, they said, this indestructible ship that we made is crumpled. Just a shell of what it once was and what it was created to be. He says, but I see small fish and medium-sized fish and large fish swimming around, just oblivious to the pressure that's all around them. Now, biologists will tell you those, those fish have a mechanism inside themselves that they can match the pressure on the outside with the pressure on the inside so they don't become a fish pancake. That's how it works. That's science. It's wonderful. What you and I have is we have the power of God in us, the spirit of God. So I can't just match the pressure that's outside. I can destroy the pressure that is outside of me. As the church, through the Spirit of God, I'm not just limited to match the pressure that the forces of evil are putting on me. We can destroy it. The power that we have within us is way greater than the power that is outside of us. Sometimes I think maybe in life that as Christians, we need to be a little bit more like those little, those medium and those big sized fish. And we can just be oblivious to the pressure that's around us. We might see what we think. Some great people of the faith crumble and fall and their life falls apart and they turn from the faith. And we go, well, how'd that happen? They were indestructible. I never thought that would happen to But it does, and we see it played out in the relationships and the things that we have in life. Friends, the Father and the Son are protecting us. He's made a promise that with the Spirit with us, that he's helped us 
not to be pressured by the sin that's around us. We have a different leader, so we live by a different law. We speak a different language. Peter, in fact, referred to you and I as Christians as aliens, as foreigners in a land that is not our own. Because as Christians, that is who we are. There's not a better biblical explanation of who we are as Christians in this world because, friends, because of sin, this world is not how God intended it to be. It is messed up from the get-go. But that's not how God wanted it. And that's why we are described as aliens living in a foreign land. That's why we sing this world is not my home. But what God is going to do is he's going to restore this earth. The heavens are going to come down and there's going to be a new earth. No more sin, no more heartache, no more enemy because the devil is going to be cast into his place. And everybody that chose to follow his lies that aren't covered by the blood of Jesus are going to join him. And the devil doesn't rule there. He is punished there just like everything else. A Scottish theologian, P.T. Forsyth, put it this way. He said, if within us we find nothing above us, we'll succumb to what's around us. And do you ever catch yourself saying, I just don't feel like myself? Or that's not something I would normally do. What I find is that happens when I neglect my relationship with the Father. I find that happens when I'm not willing to listen to what the Spirit has to say and to be obedient to how I am called to live. A psychologist would say that that is languishing. You hear people talk about a dead-end job or a dead relationship or a dead-end marriage and it can't change around. Well, if we ever say that we can't fix something, we don't fully believe in the restoration, rest, restoring power of Jesus. God can save, God can restore, God can fix things. We're surrounded by death all around us, but it has been defeated. Let me expound upon what that radio said, what I started with. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only kind of a copy, an echo, a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I do not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Let's pray. Father, may we press on, encouraged by the truth of you and your word, filled with the Spirit like John and Peter and James and Paul and Phoebe. God, God filled with the Spirit. May that be the description of our life that through us, with us, God, we change the world. God, we can't help everybody, but we can start with somebody. Heavenly Father, may your spirit lead us.
teach us and convict us and unite us together as the body of Jesus, as the bride whom he protected with his very life. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, ask all these things. Amen.